Okay. We're in the book of Genesis. You're wondering, am I leaving this this morning? Am I going to go to a Christmas text? Well, every text in the Bible is Christmas. So turn to your Bibles to Genesis 12. <laughs> I'm going to do a fairly lengthy introduction today because, or, or review, just because it's necessary. Our story starts in this text, Genesis 12. So therefore, just by way of review leading up to this text, uh, we've been studying Genesis. Genesis, the Hebrew word, uh, is the word bereshit. Bereshit means beginnings, because Genesis is the story of beginnings. It's how it begins. In the beginning, God. God what? God created. And we learned uh, that Genesis depicts creation as this act of war of God moving into what we call the tohu vohu. And if you're wondering what the tohu vohu is, well, you got a nice flavor it just by looking outside today or your drive. Like the tohu vohu is this gray, misty, swirling mass of nothingness, meaninglessness, emptiness that we sometimes just call chaos. And it's God moving into that and out of it, uh, God brings order and beauty, harmony, galaxies, skies, seas, lakes, rivers, forests, fields, flowers, gardens, creatures that fly and swim and inhabit the earth. And then God says, all right, let's top this whole thing off. I'm going to make a little replica of myself, someone that is just like me. And he calls a man, and then he makes another replica and, and calls it woman, and then he joins the two of them in marriage, and he places them in a special place called Eden, and then gives them the keys to the whole universe and says, you're in charge. And this is how creation ends. And when God says, and it was good, and it was good, uh, what God wants us to see is this beautiful harmony that infuses everything that God has made. There's no death. There's no death. There's no suffering. There's no disease. There's no decay. There's no poverty. There's no violence. There's no brokenness of any kind. I mean, Adam and Eve, think about it. They're in perfect harmony with each other. They're in harmony with themselves. They're in harmony with every aspect of God's creation. And this, the basis of this harmony is that they're in perfect harmony with God himself. Every day, every single day, when the warm sun gives way to the cool breezes, God comes to them, and they walk with God. And then, this is the tragedy of Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin, and all that harmony is ruined. Harmony with God is severed. They're expelled from the garden where they walked with God. Harmony with each other is broken. We already see in this first family how brother kills brother. Harmony with themselves is broken. They have to hide because of their shame. And even harmony with all creation is shattered. There's now thorns, there's thistles, there's disease, disease decay, and death. All because of sin. And, and this is what reigns in God's good world. This week we... Uh, trying to muster up my heart, just making it a heart, a heart of stone as I say this right now. Um, we put down our 13 and a half year old, old English sheepdog, Bentley. Yeah, 
disease, decay, and death, one. And uh, it's a crazy thing to just uh, experience that, to be in that room uh, with Libby, your daughter, our daughter Kate, and Kate just held his head right to the very end as it just slumped over. Um, and you walk out of that room and uh, your dog looks like it's sleeping on the ground, but it's not. And, you know, like devastated for a whole 24-hour period, you know, coming out of it. But it, it made, me, made me think of Bruce Cheadle, who lost his wife. Made me think of other people in our church, like Dennis Mitchell and John Fisher, who lost their spouses uh, more recently. Uh, made me think of Judy Black, who just recently lost her sister. And just, you know, how much more death, decay, and disease, it, it, it still reigns. The harmony is gone. But what we have in this devastation and wreckage of a world that's fallen, God in Genesis 3 verse 15 provides this glimmer of hope that he's going to reclaim this world. And just like at creation, God is going to come, he's going to do it again, he's going to make war on all that tohu vevohu, the disease, the decay, the death, with its root being sin, and he's going to repair, he's going to redeem, he's going to reconcile, he's going to resurrect, and there's going to be new creation. And God says in Genesis 3 that, that the promise of this is actually going to be through you, Eve, um, through one born of a woman, uh, a son, a rescuer, a redeemer. And the Bible then is the story of this promised one, this son who's to come. So then if we're reading Genesis for the first time and Adam and Eve have these two sons, we should be asking, is it, is it Cain? Is it Abel? Then Cain kills Abel. And the story is depressing again. But in this, we can see where the story is going because these two sons are more than just two sons, but these two sons come to represent two kingdoms. Two kingdoms that throughout the rest of the Bible story are diametrically opposed to each other. They're two kingdoms that are in conflict. That's why, as you keep reading, on Cain's side, seven generations in, you come to this guy Lamech, a man so consumed with himself and with anger and revenge that he takes revenge on anyone who hurts him, not just seven times, but 70 times seven. You know what that is? That's chaos. But what the Bible wants us to see uh, is that this is what characterizes the line of Cain, it's this looking out for me. It's destroying my enemies at all cause. This is the kingdom of darkness. The good news is that Eve has another son, Seth. In fact, Eve says, Seth has replaced my Abel. By the time you get to the seventh generation on the Abel, Seth's side, you have this man named Enoch, who two times the text says, and Enoch walked with God. And see, this is what characterizes this kingdom, this kingdom of light. It's a people who walk with God. And then you keep reading Genesis, and by the time then you get to the 10th generation, so violent, corrupt, and broken is the world that God says, essentially, this world needs a bath. I need to wash it clean with a baptism. 
And so he sends a flood, but yet still standing through this from the line of Seth is this righteous and blameless man named Noah, and God spares this line, and he starts over. And now where we're coming today, if Noah's 10 generations from Adam, now we're 10 generations from Noah. And last week, uh, the Tower of Babel describes this world that's united around evil, around this godless pursuit of everybody just making a name for themselves. And we're right back in this vile, corrupt place again. And human history has come to a dead end. And the world has gone completely dark again. And yet in this dark, hopeless world is this small, little ray of hope from the line of Seth, this little candle in the wind that the darkness has not yet snuffed out. And God is about to take this little light, Abram, and light up the whole world. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Genesis 12. And this is where our story begins. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth, literally all the families on the earth, We blessed through you. So Abraham went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Lot is his nephew. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all his possessions that they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. You know it as promised land. And there they arrived. This is God's word. You can be seated. So if you're reading the narrative, this is the first time now where God says, I'm not going to scrap or destroy what I've created. Instead, what God has set in motion is his plan to reclaim it, redeem it, restore it through a flood of his grace. And it all starts With Abram, God sets in motion his whole plan to reclaim, redeem, and restore a world that he loves with these awesome words. Abram, I will bless you. If you look at the text, five times uh, the word bless is used in these verses. Bless is like, what? (laughs) Doesn't sound that exciting. Bless is a pretty weak word in our English language today. If someone sneezes, bless you. I mean, that's kind of how we use it. It hardly means anything. Um, but in, in the Hebrew language, in the original language here, uh, this word explodes. It explodes with deep meaning. In Hebrew, it's the word barak or barakah. And what barak means, it means to impart life to impart the the deepest, most satisfying kind of life. Brock is a word that that actually implies within it transformation and regeneration and exaltation. 
And this is why when God is creating the world and, and, and why that world has all this harmony infused into it, it's, it's punctuated by God's Barak, by him blessing it. In Genesis 1 verse 22, after he makes all the living things, it says, and he blessed every living creature. He is imparting the life of God into that. Uh, in Genesis 1 verse 28, after he creates uh, Adam, male and female, the humans, it says, and he blessed them. He is, he, is, he is imparting all the life of God into them. He does the same with Sabbath, this, this day of rest. He's exalting this day and imparting life in this day. And that's what Barak means. And yet its most literal meaning uh, in the Hebrew, Barak, is to bend the knee. Because this actually speaks to how one blesses. Uh, the, the way that one would impart this explosive, transformative, satisfying kind of life is by Barak. It's by bending the knee. And when I bend the knee to bless you, I am making myself as small as I can, as low as I can get, to make you great, to magnify you. And see, I get the meaning of this word then when I, when I come to a place like Psalm 103 where David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, because here David is literally preaching to his soul and he's saying, soul, bless God. Soul, bend your knee, get as low as you can before this God to make his name great, to magnify him. I get that. It's the most appropriate response we could have to the creator of the universe, but what blows me away in Genesis 12 is God saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. I'm going to brach. I'm gonna bend my knee to you. I'm going to get as low as I can and make myself as small as I can in order to make your name great, to make your family great. This is how God's going to redeem the world. And at first blush, it almost sounds blasphemous that God would do such a thing that the creator and the ruler of the whole universe would make himself so small and bend the knee to us to make us great until we come to our New Testament and it starts with what we're celebrating right now, Christmas. I mean, that's what that little baby in a manger is. It's the God of the universe who spoke it all into existence, whose our minds can't even begin to fathom how great he is. Look how small he became. Look how low he stooped. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to impart to you the deepest, most satisfying life into you. I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to bend my knee to you. I also want us to see some other things that are at the heart of this blessing. Uh, the first is that when God blesses Abraham, yes, he's doing this directly to Abraham, but he has the whole world in mind. 
Because God doesn't just bless Abraham and Abraham's family so that they can have this special privilege and special status in the world. Because when God blesses any time, his blessing is never an end to itself. His blessing is not ever something that we should just hoard for ourselves or hoard for our family or hoard for our tribe. We have to see this. It's, it, it, it's so loud and clear in verse two when God says, I'm blessing you, Abraham, so you can be a blessing. I'm bending the knee to you, Abraham, so that you can bend the knee to the world. We have to see this. We have to see that we're blessed to bless, that we are redeemed to redeem. We are reconciled to reconcile. We are forgiven to forgive. We are exalted to exalt. We are always to think, how am I going to take all that God has imparted into me and pay that forward in a world that he loves so much? And we do that until it reaches every family on the face of the earth. This is God's plan. This is God's heart. The second thing I want us to see is who God calls. This is hugely important because I think right now, as we think about Abraham, we might just think that God looked down and where can I find the most spiritual man on the face of the earth? Oh, it's Abraham. Abraham's not an exceptional person. He's ordinary. I want to start with, with, with Abram's name because names in the ancient world were more than just labels that you put on someone a name actually spelled out a person's identity uh, with the idea that your identity is going to determine your destiny because that's just how it is. Who you know yourself to be is going to largely determine what you are becoming. And so Abram, his name most essentially means daddy. Okay, so how would you like to go through, 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 through life with the name daddy? And then God, like, at some point in the game says, okay... Daddy's good, but I want to change your name. I want to change your name from Daddy. I want to change it now to Big Daddy. Okay, now get yourself in Abraham's shoes right now, okay? Your name means Daddy. Um, verse 30 of chapter 11 says that Sarah, Sarai, his wife, was barren. She's barren. She can't have kids. And then when you get to verse 4, we know that Abraham, Abram's already 75 years old. So imagine being Abram and going through life and your name is Daddy and you're 75 years old. And then you're 80 years old. And, you know, you're always, oh, so how many kids do you have? And then you get to 90 and God says, all right, I'm changing your name from Daddy to Big Daddy. And it's just almost, is this a joke? God, like, what are you doing here? And then when you also add to this right now, I don't know how much you know about Abraham and, and the religions of the world, but three religions claim Abraham as their spiritual father. Muslims claim Abraham as their spiritual father. Uh, the Jewish people claim Abraham as their spiritual father. Isaiah 51 says, "'Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness "'and who seek the Lord.'" Look to the rock from which you were cut, to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, your mother. And we, we as Christians, too, we, we call Abraham Father Abraham. We, we look to him as our 
great spiritual father. It's in Galatians 6 verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Don't be confused. Still, all God's blessings are going to come through Abraham to the one, the promised one, the Christ. But what I want us to see right here, this is the greatness of Abraham. He actually does live into his name, but look at what God calls. He calls the most barren man and the most barren woman and says, out of you, I am going to have millions of people who are going to call you your father. This is from cover to cover in the Bible. It's everywhere. This is not just an accident here. Whenever God is about to do a great thing, he always looks for the least, the smallest, the weakest, the barren to accomplish his grand purposes. This moves me to my soul. This is the exact opposite of our world. God's heart is so, so drawn to the little people, to the underdog. He loves the weak. He chooses the poor. Listen to what Paul says in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things so that no one may boast before him. And the moment we forget God's heart, we can't forget this or God will draw away from us. And we can't be used of God. Now let's look at God's call. Because I, I, I find this to be pretty intense. The call is in verse one. These two words, Abraham, go. Go. I like how the King James actually interprets this. Abram, get thee out. Get out. Leave. Leave your country, your people, even your father. By the way, if you do the biblical math, his father is still alive when Abraham leaves. Go. Get out. Leave. Now, in the ancient world, a person's worth, security, and identity was formed by three things. It was formed first by your country, the place where you lived. It was formed by your people, your, your tribe, and its culture. And most importantly, it was formed by your father's house, your family, which is rooted in your father's care in protection. God asked Abram to leave these three things. In other words, it's the call to leave everything. Leave your comfort, leave your security, leave, your, leave what's familiar to you. 
leave all the things of, of this world that you hold dear. Leave everything from this world that defines who you are, Abraham. Leave it behind. And this is where I come to this part of the text and the story, and I say, could I do this? Could you do this? Because wherever God's call goes forth and whatever God's call is properly heard, it is still the same. It hasn't changed. It's still this call to leave, to let go, to depart with those things of this world that define us. Abraham, leave it. Drop your nets and come follow me. That's the call. And I love how this... uh, makes sense in the Hebrew, uh, the word for, for, for go here is lek, leka. Abraham, lek, leka. Lek, leka simply means you walk. It's the command to start walking. And this is why when you get to Hebrews 11 and it does commentary on, on Abraham's life and says, by faith, Abraham did this, and by faith, Abraham did this. Uh, one of the first statements it says in Hebrews 11 is, is that by faith, Abraham, he went, he walked, not knowing even where he was going. Could you do that? And, and, and does it matter that God's command to Abraham here is to walk, start walking. When I look at the text and I look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I mean, I wish I had time right now to show you all the times where, where God calls us to walk. I mean, in many ways, this whole thing is about a walk. It's about finding God's path and walking it. God says, walk in my ways. He says, walk according to my word. He says, walk in my Torah. He says, walk before me in truth with all your heart. Walk in the light of my face. I will teach you my path and you must walk in it. What does the Lord require of you? But you do justice and you love mercy and you walk humbly with your God. And this whole command to walk harkens us back to the first usage of the word walk in our Bible. In Eden, where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. And so Abraham is hearing when God's saying to him, Lech, Lecha, start walking. He knows that this is God's invitation to him. Let's walk together again, like we once did in the garden. And it's also God, God saying to, to, to Abraham something that was lost in that. They, they no longer knew how to walk. Let me, let me teach you how to walk again. Let me teach the human race through you, Abraham, how to walk how to walk with God, how to walk like God. And this is what made Eden, Eden. In fact, a little bit later in the narrative, God is gonna say to Abram, because Abram, even though he's this old man, he's, he's a spiritual infant. He's gonna say, Abram, walk before me. And the image here is just like, you know, when your kids were like just starting to learn how to walk, they're just infants, but... Sometimes it happens at one, sometimes it happens at two, sometimes it happens at four. Um, remember just putting your hands in front of them? That's what God's saying, Abraham, walk before me. I'm going to teach you how to walk. 
You get to the New Testament, and, and in our NIVs, I mean, so many times uh, there's this command to live, live a certain way. Uh, but it, it, the word in the original language is actually walk. And again, I wish I could show you all the places in our New Testament, but walk after me, walk according to the Spirit, walk in the manner worthy of Christ, walk in light of God's Word, walk in Christ, walk in Him, walk in the newness of life. Walk such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and rejoice and give praise to God. See, God's call is all about finding his path and walking it. It's walking with God. It's walking like God. It's walking for God. Does that define your life? Because I'll say this, all the spiritual greats, they understood this. I mean, they're just ordinary people like, like us, but what made them great is their life was simply about hearing God's call and walking with God and, and in that learning to walk like God and, and walking for God. We see this in Moses. Moses is on this path. He's living this akuna matata, comfortable, trouble-free life, and then all of a sudden, boom, God shows up. Moses, I want you to change paths right now, and I want you to walk to Pharaoh. That's literally how the text reads. Start walking. And Moses starts making all these excuses. Who am I to walk to Pharaoh? And God says, this isn't about you, Moses. Just walk, and I will be with you. And Moses walks, and, and he, walks to, he learns to walk with God, and in this, Moses' people too, they're called by God and they find God's path and they walk it. I can take you all over the Bible to show you stories like this. In the New Testament, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're on this path. They're just living their lives and then boom, one day Jesus shows up and he says, it's time to change paths, guys. Drop your nets. Start walking. Walk after me. And these guys laid it all down and, and Jesus showed them the path of God and they learned how to walk it and to walk it like Jesus. Same with Paul. Paul's on this path and then boom, one day Christ meets him. He says, Paul, you're on the wrong path. You need to repent. You need to turn to my path. Start walking, Paul. Walk my path. Walk like me. Are you walking with him? Do you walk like him? Do you walk for him? That's what was so inspiring about these Romanian, Ukrainian Christians. The miles that they walked for Christ and how they walked like Christ because they walked with Christ. What kind of walk do you have today? What, what kind of passion, what kind of desire do you even have to, to walk, to walk with God? I think three of the most stunning words in our Bibles is in verse four. It says, so Abram went. It's literally, so Abram walked. And I want you to see how far he walked. And as Hebrews said, not knowing where he was going, if you 
Go back into the text previous. Abram starts in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he makes it all the way to promised land. That is 1,000 miles. That this man walked where every step was a step of faith. I don't know where I'm going, but God, you said walk, and I'm going to walk. This walk demanded everything from Abram. He had to leave everything. He had to give up everything. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves in the narrative, we know that this walking will commence on a hill that is today called Mount Moriah. And this is right before Abraham is about to die and God calls to him and he says to him again, Leklika, let's start walking. Where? I'll show you. For what? A sacrifice. What do you want me to sacrifice? Your son. And the text says, and Abraham got up and he walked. You know, we look at Abraham's life and even the little we know about him, we can look back on it and, and, and see what a big, huge life this man lived. I mean, he lived into his name. He became this great exalted father, the spiritual father of millions upon millions of people. In fact, I think you could argue today that other than Jesus Christ, he is the greatest human to ever walk the face of the earth. And this is where you have to ask the other question then, how, why, what, what, how, how does this happen? And, and then when you look at, its at his life, it's not that he sought it. It's not that he lived his life seeking to make a great name for himself. He's not going the Babel way where he's trying to make a name for himself through wealth or celebrity or fame. He just became great because God made his name great. It's because he heard God's call and, and he walked and he left everything and he found God's path where his heart was in total solidarity with God and, and through all this, he learned to walk as God, like God, and he walked for God, and God blessed him. God imparted to Abraham the deepest, most satisfying life there is, the life of God into Abraham. God exalted him. And unlike Babel, where everybody's seeking to make a name for themselves, through themselves, God made Abraham's name great. And even the harmony that was lost through the fall, it is now being restored because a man and a woman heard God's call and found God's path. And in walking with God, they learned to walk like God. And this harmony was not just for Abraham and Abraham's family, but through Abraham and his family, all the families of the earth are now being restored, blessed, because eventually through Abraham's family comes the one, the promised son, the rescue, rescue, rescuer, redeemer. Think about how our New Testament starts. Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And think about how the promised son came to the world. 
He gave up everything. He left his father's house, his country, his place in the heavenlies. He came across all worlds. He became a baby. And like Abraham, a stranger in a strange world. And for 33 years, he walked on this earth, showing us how to walk. And he ended his walk like Abraham by walking up that same mountain where he became so small and so weak where he laid himself on that altar with arms outstretched. He blessed the world. So Paul, Ephesians 1 verse 3 can say, Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Because God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things to us that are practically nothing, to make obsolete the things that are, so that no one can boast before him. And God not only loves that, that's not only his heart, he became that. Are you experiencing the blessings of God? Life to the full. Are you happy? Are you, are you like right now sitting in your chair like, I'm trying so hard to contain right now all the joy and life that's in me. See, so many of us come to God and we want the blessings of God. We say, God, bless me. God, bless me. Make my name great. Give me the life that I want or the life that I think I deserve. Listen, God wants to bless you. He wants to remake you. He wants to impart uh, the deepest, most satisfying life there is, but definitely not to an end to itself, so he can then bless the world through you. And we'll never experience the blessing of God until we leklaka, until we leave. Until we leave comfort, until we leave living life for ourselves, until we give up control, until we part with the people, places, and things, things in which we find our worth and our identity. And I know what you're asking right now to yourself. Why would I want to do that? Because I like comfort. I like my security. I like being in control. Because this is God's way. In leaving everything, we find everything. C.S. Lewis, probably the most profound quote, at least in my opinion, is this. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite desires every day and submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing because nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. In fact, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. But look out for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and seek him and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. This is God's way. Whoever claims to be in Christ said one of his disciples must walk as Jesus walked. And Jesus, we thank you that you walked from the heavenlies and you became the smallest, the weakest, 
the most despised. You bent the knee so low so you could bless. And God, now as your people who have experienced that blessing, all the blessings that are in Jesus Christ, God, you have blessed us to be a blessing. May we be that to our world. May we be bending the knee as you bent the knee to us. In your name we pray, amen.